So, are you stressed out about money? Stressed out about money this morning? You a little worried about paying the bills today? Are you a little preoccupied with the stock market? Was money and and finances that kind of got a got a hold of you? If so, then maybe what you need is a belted satchel. Yeah, maybe you need a, a belted satchel. It goes by other names. It's been known over ancient history as a buffalo pouch, a belly bag, a chatelaine, and a hands-free bag. It's just a little pouch that, that wraps around or, or belts around a person's waist. It's, it's just a little thing. It's a perfect little place to put like a, you know, a money clip and, and some car keys and a cell phone. And, it, and its small size really comes in handy when you, you don't want to lug around or have the responsibility of a big cumbersome pocketbook or, you know, a briefcase or, or a backpack. So there's, there's something nice about that small size. The term belted satchel has been attributed to designer Diane von Furstenberg. I knew I wouldn't get her name right. Sorry, Diane. And what I love about the term belted satchel and if she did create it, I'm hugely thankful because it means I don't have to keep using the words fanny pack today in the sermon. So I'm really, really happy for the old belted satchel. You can get some semi-cool belted satchels at the luggage store or maybe the uh, hipster outdoor store, something to, to take on a hiking trip or, or maybe to take overseas. There are also some that are not so cool the kinds of things that really, for the sake of your kids, please do not ever wear out into public. Every now and then you may see some pictures of some celebrities with a stylish fanny pack. You might also, from time to time, be scouring the internet like I was this week and come across a deal on a trend-setting belted satchel. This week I saw one for only thirteen twenty-five. Yes, there's supposed to be a comma after that one. $1,325 for the old belted satchel. That is a steal, right? But maybe you don't like a belted satchel. Maybe you're a clutch purse kind of person, or maybe a sling bag, or, or maybe you like a, a Harley chain wallet. Now you just want one hanging off your belt. You don't want anything else. Well, regardless of what your particular style may be, the one thing that all of these things seem to have in common is the one thing that they usually hold, and that is your method of payment, your cash, your debit card or credit card, a gift card, some buffalo nickels, maybe one check all folded up inside of that little pouch. The way that you pay for things. You know, for years it's been said that eventually all those things are going to be replaced, right? And, and we're going to have a, a microchip somewhere in our hand. That way when, when Bubba goes and buys his butterscotch macho chino, when he gets up to the register, he's just going to kind of swipe his thumb over there and, and pay for his drink. And of course, Bubba might want to be careful about how much he waves his thumb, or he might buy all of those gourmet granola bars and all the leftover Kenny G CDs that are sitting on the counter when he's trying to pay. The future is coming, and maybe there will be a different way to pay. But the question is this. What is a belted satchel or a clutch purse or a wallet chain have to do with helping you with stress over money? How do any of those things even remotely start helping you with stressing out about money? 
Well, it all goes back to the method of payment. What is your method of payment doing to you? Are you wasteful with money? Are you stingy and miserly with money? Are you struggling to to keep up with a budget? Are you snuggling way too much with your retirement? When it comes to your personal finances and your material things, are you obsessed with making a lot of money? Or are you stressed out because it seems like your money keeps running out? Well, if you are obsessed or stressed, if you are afraid or arrogant, if you are worried or wanting when it comes to your money, Jesus has some pretty significant advice for all of us. Luke chapter 12, beginning with verse 33. Jesus says, Sell your possessions and give to charity. Now, that sentence, for most of us, just stirred us in one of two different directions. Right? Here's the first one. You know, Jesus is right. I've been telling Biff for months that we need to have a yard sale. We've got so much stuff around this house we don't use. Clothes and tools and almanacs. we we got things we just should sell. And then we're going to take all that money and we can go and give that to the Spotted Housefly Society so that they can save all those houseflies over there in River City. That's what we'll do. But that's one reaction. Oh, yeah, I need, I need to do something charitable. Or one of the other reactions that many people have is this. Great. <laughs> all I need is some hippie Jesus talk about me giving my hard-earned money to a bunch of good-for-nothing lazy people who won't, out, won't go out and get a job, you know. One of two places I knew I could get Harold to amen. We are, we are kind of prone to one of those two extremes. So let me get us to kind of meet in the middle a little bit on this. Maybe think of it this way. You might think, well, I know I need to provide, you know, decent food and shelter for my family. And so therefore, maybe I don't need to go upgrade my air compressor from the one I bought last week. Since the new one now has 221 volts instead of 220 volts. I mean, I don't know, 220, 221. I mean, what's it really going to take? The reality is maybe I should take that money and I should use that money and invest it in a local ministry, maybe like Lighthouse for Life. Or maybe along these lines, look, I... I know that I need to provide, you know, decent clothes and decent shoes for my kids as they go off to school. And I don't know, maybe this is the year that we don't go on the Vanilla Ice Alaskan cruise. You know, maybe we just skip it this year and and we take that money and we're going to invest that money maybe in the Lottie Moon Missions Offering. You see, it's, it's a meeting in the middle. And that meeting in the middle is important when you remember the neighborhood of verses that we're in. See, Jesus has been talking to his disciples about being worried, about being stressed, about being afraid of what they're going to wear and and what they're going to eat. And he keeps telling them, look, guys, don't do those things. And so this statement fits in right with that. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, look, if you're going to be obsessed about the air compressor, if you're going to be preoccupied and and addicted and worried about that, just, just one extra volt. Then, then maybe what you need to do is go out in your tool shop and you need to go see if you have any more preoccupied purchases in there, any more obsessive purchases. And maybe you need to take those things and you need to go sell those things and you need to give that money to a couple that's trying to adopt a child from overseas. 
Or maybe if tools are not your thing, maybe, maybe it's as if Jesus is saying, you know what, you don't need to be addicted to or worried about or afraid because the big, huge, gigantic annual one-day sale is happening on leopard print boots at Cinderella's Shoe Palace. You know, don't, don't get worked up about that. I mean, you already have 33 pairs of leopard print boots. I mean, how many more do you need? Maybe you need to sell some of those, and maybe why don't you take that money and, and give it to that single mom that's having a hard time just getting one pair of shoes for their kids. This is not a one-hit wonder from Jesus. This is the way Jesus always talked. And how did Jesus always talk? He talked in a way to encourage us to not accumulate lots of stuff. The picture and the way that Jesus talked is always about simplifying. That's how one pastor says Jesus is, is talking here. The whole theme of what he's saying is, is to simplify rather than accumulate. Simplify rather than accumulate. The wise words of the book of Proverbs says this, Proverbs 30, verse 8. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. So, Lord, just give me today what I, what I need. Give me what is needful. If we're really honest about the times that we're stressed out about money, more often than not, our stress over money is about something that we want instead of something that we need. And even if our stress is over something that we need, usually we've run out of the money because we've already spent it foolishly. You know, you, you don't have lunch money today because last night you bought season eight of your favorite do-it-yourself reality show where, where pets do home makeovers, you know. So you, you're putting your money in lots of things, but maybe not what you need to put it in. Jesus is not trying to take away what is needful from you. What Jesus is trying to do when he tells us to sell what we have is to try to let us know that for most of us, most of the time, God in his grace gives us more than we need so that we can give to those who are in need. And again, this is not a new way that Jesus talked. It was how he consistently talked. One day this rich young man came up to him and he said, Hey Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? This is what Jesus said to him, Luke chapter 18, verse 20. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Rich man heard this and he thought, man, that's great news. I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. I mean, I've never committed adultery. I've, I've never murdered anybody. I, I manage my business with integrity. I've never ripped off my employees. I've never ripped off the shareholders. My neighbors and my friends, they trust me. And I have honored and obeyed my parents. Pretty decent guy, right? So this is how Jesus responds to his response. One thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor. I mean, that's a little harsh, right? I mean, come on, Jesus, dial it back a little bit, right? I mean, this, this is a decent guy. I mean, he, he's really trying to do the right thing. So, so why in the world would, would Jesus put this huge pressure on him? Why, why wouldn't he dial it back? Well, Jesus could have. Jesus could have said something completely different. He could have said, you know, this guy's trying. I, I think I'm going to cut him a break. But he didn't. And why? 
Well, we're going to see why in just a minute, but this is probably a good time to, to make sure we don't let this story pass us by. So when you see these words from the rich young man, sell everything and give to the poor, do you think Jesus is asking you to do that? I mean, to, to go and liquidate everything that you have. Is Jesus asking you to do that? He might be. <laughs> he very well might be. I don't know. I don't, I don't know what your talks with Jesus are like, but he could be. But remember who he's talking to here. Jesus is not talking to a rich man in Luke 12. He's talking to his disciples, his closest friends. These are guys who just left their normal lives and their normal jobs they probably don't own a lot of stuff. And so why in the world would, would Jesus tell these guys, hey, y'all need to go sell what you have and, and give it to the poor because they, they were kind of poor themselves. Well, the picture we have is, is Jesus is trying to reshape them. He's trying to reshape their impulses. He's trying to reshape their reflexes. And he's trying to reshape their motivations. If you go to the doctor and and he hits your knee in just the right place. The bottom part of your leg pops up, right? So when your money gets hit in just the right place, what pops up? Is it worry? Stress? Anxiety? Fear? Anger? Selfishness? Pride? What, what, what pops up? What does your money do to you? How does your money and, and your your material stuff, how does it impact the way you think and the way you act and the way you make decisions? Well, if you're not sure, I'm going to help you find the answer to that question right now. See, Jesus was not giving financial advice. Jesus was giving a commandment. So when you hear Jesus say, sell your possessions and give to the poor, what kicks up inside of you? Do you think, okay, I'm okay with that idea, or do you think, mm, Jesus, you're meddling with my stuff now? Is Jesus trying to put you out on the street begging for a handout when he says this? No, he's not. Is Jesus trying to get you to take the things that you have and to hold them with an open hand instead of a closed fist? Yes, that is exactly what Jesus is doing. See, he's giving his disciples a, a principle to live by. And not just his disciples, he's given us a principle to live by. And not a confusing principle with lots of percentages or, or compound interest formulas. It's a, it's a simple principle. It's a principle that a six-year-old can understand and a 60-year-old can understand. It's a principle that can easily be applied on the playground and it can easily be applied in the conference room. And that principle is... Really simple. It's just this. Be generous. Give and serve. Simplify rather than accumulate. It's a simple principle. It doesn't really take a lot of math. But it's not an easy principle to live out. You know why Jesus didn't dial it back with the rich young man? Well, the way we know is because of how the rich young man responded. This is what happened, Luke 18, verse 23. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. His impulse was sadness 
because he loved his stuff. His, his first impulse, his reflex was greed and sadness because he really liked his money and he really liked his stuff. In other words, what he had had become an idol. Jesus did not want his friends to have idols. He didn't want his disciples to have idols. So he was trying to reshape their impulses. He was trying to reshape their reflexes. He was trying to reshape their motivations. He was trying to get them to think different. And sometimes he says that might involve you selling what you have so that you can get some cash so you can give it to the poor. At least that would have been the case for the disciples who may not have had a lot of cash on them. Now, Jesus was not giving silly financial advice. And Jesus was not commanding his disciples to be poor. He wasn't commanding them to be foolish. He wasn't commanding them to be lazy and to not work. He wasn't commanding them to live in a commune where everybody shared one toothbrush. Okay? That, that's not what Jesus is teaching. And just to be sure that they understood that that's not what he was saying, he goes on and says what he says next. Look at verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out. Jesus wasn't telling them to be poor beggars. He wasn't telling them to go stand out on a street corner with a cardboard sign. He was commanding them to live by a simple principle. Be generous, give and serve, simplify rather than accumulate. And then he makes it really practical. He gives a, a very strategic way that they needed to be thinking about it. So let's see if we can kind of contextualize this for today. So imagine you go out and you buy the $1,325 belted satchel, all right? You go splurge and, and get you the, the really nice fanny pack. And you and your family go on the Vanilla Ice Alaskan cruise. And one night, man, you're just dancing away, doing the Roger Rabbit. And by the time the concert is over, you didn't realize that on the very bottom of that expensive satchel, one of them little gold threads started unraveling. And it unraveled and unraveled. And the more you danced, the more it unraveled. And before long, at the end of the night, you look down and all of your money is gone. <laughs> it's been falling all over the dance floor all night long. And people are looking down, hey, free money. And they pick it up, put it in their pocket, and it's, it's gone. So Jesus is telling his friends, don't worship your money. Don't worship your stuff. So if it does fall out on the dance floor, and if you lose all of it, you won't be devastated. What he's really doing, he's saying, look, you exist for the glory of God. So by all means, if you exist for the glory of God, so does your stuff. So does your money. So, so use your money for the glory of God. Don't, don't just use your money for here. Let your belted satchel be your deposit slip for heaven. Spend your money in, in such a way here. Live here in such a way that people know here is not your primary goal. And why should you do that? I mean, really, why, why should you live your life not with the strongest impulse for investing for life after 62, but that your strongest impulse would be investing for life after death. Why should you do something like that? Well, Jesus tells us. Look what he says next. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, 
an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. Look, somebody might steal something out of the back of your truck. Even if your truck is sitting right out here in the front parking lot on Easter Sunday morning right next to the cross with all the pretty flowers on it, somebody might steal something out of the back of your truck. And the old white-shouldered house moth, if it gets in your closet, it's going to find the most expensive pair of pants or the fanciest dress there, and it's going to munch on that for breakfast because that's just what they do. And the greatest government and the most successful financial system and the coolest sports car and the coolest house and the coolest museum and the coolest vacation spot and the coolest tech gadgets will one day cease to exist. And so Jesus is saying, don't make the mistake, the eternal mistake, of using your soul to buy stock in any of those things. About 600 years before Jesus was born, Zedekiah became the king over God's people. He was 21 years old when he became king. And what was his reign like? 2 Chronicles 36 gives us a picture. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. Now, I'm not the smartest crayon in the box, but that does not sound good. doesn't sound like what you want written about you. So if that's what the king was like, what were the people like? Verse 14. All the officials of the priests and the people were very unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. So, the people of God, the church folks, they were living their lives in the same kind of way, with the same kind of sinful and immoral attitudes and activities as the people who ignore, deny, or hate God. That was the scene. We don't ever see anything like that today, right? (laughs) Sadly, we still see that today. So how did God respond to all of this? Listen to verse 15. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. Truth, love, grace, mercy, compassion. Listen, we live in a world that when it comes to the discussion of religion, particularly the one true God of Israel, particularly Jesus Christ, there's a lot of conversation that says that, wait a minute, what about death? What about hell? What about these unfair, unjust things that can't be explained? And what happens is the questions become doctrine. But here's the reality. The very character and nature of God is truth and love and grace and mercy and compassion. It is who he is. It is how he works. And it's not just something he's been doing today. It's how he's always worked. So how do these people respond to God's mercy and his truth? Verse 16. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, until there was no remedy, no cure. So the people of God said to God, We hear you. 
but, but we don't care. We want to do what we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it. So God, thanks, but no thanks. You, you just stay in heaven and just leave us alone. And technically, their prayer was answered because they were invaded and conquered by another nation. And what did the invading nation do? Listen to verse 19. Then they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all its valuable articles. Don't miss this scene. Let's update it a bit. So the pews and the piano and the organ and the decorative crosses in the sanctuary and the decorative crosses on the signs and the decorative crosses in the halls, the the Sunday school classroom, the prayer room, the youth room, the nursery, the sound system, the TV screens, everything was burned and destroyed. Boy, that's why I like going to Holland Avenue. Man, the preacher is so positive. Man, all these good things. Well, here's the good news. So imagine that you lived during that time. And it wasn't just that they burned your church down, but they burned your house down. But you weren't like Zedekiah. You you didn't follow after Zedekiah in his ways. You stayed true to God. No, you were not happy standing there looking at the ashes, looking at the, the devastation of your church and your house. No, you weren't happy, but you were not devastated. Why? Well, because you immediately started remembering the character and the nature of God. You remembered that his very nature, he is truth, he is love, he is grace, he is mercy, he is compassion. And you began to remind yourself that 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 promise that was made to Moses all those years ago, it was still true. Exodus 6, verse 7, I will take you for my people and I will be your God. And you would stand there looking at the devastation, but you wouldn't be devastated because you'd be remembering that song that your mom used to sing when she was making breakfast in the morning. It went something like this, Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Because of your loving kindness, because of your truth, why should the nation say, where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens. And you would stand there and you would look at all of the ashes and you would put your hand on your belted satchel and you would say, I just lost everything and yet I have not lost anything because my God was not those buildings. And the valuable articles in those buildings are not my salvation. My Redeemer lives in heaven. If you're a Christian, be generous. Give and serve. Simplify rather than accumulate. Why? Why would you do that? Why would you listen to Jesus Say, sell your possessions and and give to the poor. Why why would you listen to Jesus say, don't worship your stuff? Well, here's why. Because through his birth and through his death and through his resurrection, 
Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, purchased a guaranteed promise for you. And that promise is more valuable than anything you will ever own on this planet. And his promise sounds a little like this. John chapter 10, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's amazing. But then he keeps going. Just thought another sentence would be good. My father who has given them to me, he is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. See, we're generous and we give and we serve because we have been given so much. We've been given eternal life in Jesus Christ. We've been rescued by Jesus. And not only does Jesus have us in his hand, but then God puts his hands around that, and no one can snatch us. They can snatch our money. They can snatch our houses. They can burn our churches to the ground, but no one can touch Jesus. And no one can touch our salvation. So we give. We give because Jesus has saved us. We give. We are generous because there will never be a moment that God is not greater than. Never.